Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Welcome everyone back to The Grid. I am so excited about our guest today, Matt Matros. He's a three-time World Series of Poker Bracelet winner with over two and a half million in live earnings. He's also author of a book released during the poker boom called The Making of a Poker Player, How an Undergraduate Math Wizard Learned to Play Championship Poker. Now Matt has a brand new book coming out, The Game Plan, How Casual Players Become Threats in No Limit Hold'em Tournaments. Incidentally, Matt also shares lots of other interests with me, including chess, literature, and parenting two-year-olds. <laughs> Matt had a really fascinating heads-up hand today to discuss with us, Jack Deuce Suited. Thanks so much for joining me, Matt. Of course. Thanks for having me, Jen. So tell us a little bit about this hand. When and where did it take place? It was the 2013 NBC Heads-Up Tournament, so the invitation-only Heads-Up Tournament that was on NBC back then and I had scored an invitation because that was coming off of my three consecutive bracelets at the World Series of Pokers. I was never much of a poker personality and I didn't usually get invited to televised stuff like this. But because I had been on a bit of a run at the World Series the previous three summers, I was able to somehow get an invite to this tournament. So it was the first round and I was paired against Brian Hastings, who at the time was considered one of the best, if not the best heads up no limit holding players on the planet. So I had my work cut out for me and I knew that. And I and I'm not I was not then and not now a heads up specialist. So I needed to do a fair amount of preparation before this match. Even though the structure of the NBC heads up, as anyone who has seen it on TV probably knows, is extremely fast. The matches are designed to end in an hour or less, and many of them, including mine, end much faster. So despite that, I wanted to be well prepared. It was a $25,000 buy-in tournament. I didn't want to just go there and play some weak heads-up strategy. So I got in touch with uh, a buddy of mine, well-known poker player, who gave me some tips about heads-up play. And I kind of realized as I was studying it that I would need to have some kind of four-bet bluffing range that was going to look sort of strange. So that's how we got to... Jack do suited. I didn't want to be bluffing with hands that could reasonably gain some more equity by seeing the flop by calling a three bet. And so the four bet bluffing hands I picked were some hands where if they got called, they would still have some value. But if someone five bet on me, shoved, shoved on me, I wouldn't really care. I would happily fold. And so probably the worst of these hands that I picked from my four bet bluffing range was Jack do suited. Were you picking Jack Do suited as a hand that you would always bluff, or was it just like some of the time? No, it was. If if I was if I raised and got three bet with Jack Do suited, I was always going to four bet with it. I probably a better sort of optimal strategy would probably be to take a slice of all your sort of bad hands and do it some percentage of the time with them. But 
I didn't really want to figure out how to make my brain do that because it's really hard for, for humans to sort of self-randomize or self-select when, okay, we're going to do this 20% of the time. Okay, well, what does that mean? It's really hard not to do it. If you think you're doing it 20%, it's really hard not to do it like either 5% or, you know, 50%. It's, it's hard to make – computers can do it easily, and that's probably the right way to go. But for me, I just said, all right, I'm going to pick a few hands to do it 100% of the time with so I don't have to worry about calibrating myself. And other hands, even though maybe it would make sense to do it with more hands, a smaller percentage, that, that, was, not, that was not my plan for practical reasons. Did all of the four-bet hands that you were going to do it with uh, that weren't good have a use in them? <laughs> so, just so people who play you <laughs> – at the WSOP, no. <laughs> no, they definitely didn't. In fact, this might have been the only one that had a deuce in it. I'm not really sure. I don't remember right now the exact range I picked. But I do remember thinking, wow, I just set up this range the night before. I've never four bet with Jack Deuce suited in my life in any form of poker. Not that I had played much heads up, but I had logged probably 50 to 75 hours of heads up play. And in all that time, I don't think I'd ever, I'm sure, in fact, that I had never four bet with Jack Deuce suited. But, you know, the night before, I'm picking my range and decided that it made sense. And again, I think this was the weakest hand in the entire range. And sure enough, like 10 hands into the match, um, Brian's three-betting me, and I find myself four-betting with Jack Deuce suited. And then I'm further thinking, like, well, at least he'll probably never call. I mean, I know what I decided in my study that it's theoretically correct to have a three-bet range that you then flat the four-bet with. But I was actually surprised that that's something good players did. I would have thought facing a four-bet, you'd probably just five-bet or fold. So it's interesting to me that theoretically you should have a three bet call range. And in fact, I was planning to have a three bet call range, but I thought Brian Hastings is not going to do that. Brian Hastings is either going to shove or fold. It's going to be fine. Well, that's not what happened. He in fact does call. And now I'm taking a flop in position with uh, the Jack of spades and the deuce of spades. The flop comes Jack 10, three with the Jack 10 of clubs. I do on a backdoor, the flush draw for what it's worth. And, Brian checks, and I have about, I guess, two times the size of the pot left in my stack at this point. Maybe a little more, actually. more, Maybe more like um, two and a half to three times the size of the pot. So I bet for value because, well, now I have top pair, and it still heads up. It's a four-bet pot, and you don't necessarily love top pair bottom kicker in a, in a four-bet pot. But in heads up, top pair is almost always a pretty strong hand. And so I bet it for value. And Brian shoves at me, and I'm kind of wondering what I've now done to myself because it's I'm, – I'm now playing this huge pot with not that great a hand really. And Brian, there's no reason that Brian's range has to be capped here. He could have easily decided to flat preflop with all the overpairs. And so I might have just like played myself out of the NBC heads up with, with Jack Deuce suited. But I did not bet the hand to fold it. And I even said that out loud. As the hand was happening, I said, well, I didn't bet this hand to then fold to your shove, Brian. And we we kind of knew each other a little. So we were, you know, it was a it was a friendly back and forth that was happening. And I said, I call. And we weren't allowed to turn our, our cards over yet because they had to bring the cameras over to get the reactions to when the cards were revealed. And as they're coming over, Brian says, I'm liking what I'm hearing over here. I'm liking you saying that you're unhappy that you had to call after you bet. And I'm like, this is terrible. He's clearly got kings. I'm clearly going to go broke now. But then the hands are revealed, and Brian is the one who's shocked because he has ace-10, and he finds out he's behind. And I was definitely also a little surprised as well because he seemed so confident in his hand. Had to be good when I was saying, well, I'm forced to call after betting. So he's more of a heads-up player than I am, and maybe just in his head, any kind of top pair is a significantly stronger holding than it was in my mind at that time. The sad ending to the story is that an ace hit immediately 
on the turn and I was knocked out on the hand. But the lesson for me from the hand was, well, there were several lessons. One is, is that once you sort of apply a new concept or learn something new about any kind of poker game, it's kind of amazing how fast you'll find yourself with an excuse to put that into action and see how well it's working and trying to test it and seeing if it makes sense to continue doing. And so I think anyone who's trying to improve should constantly be sort of tweaking their game and trying new ideas. And you'll end up getting at least some kind of feedback in the in your play and as to whether that it's going to be a successful strategy or not. And the second thing is that there's just so much luck in this game. Like it, it doesn't, you can do all the prep you want and you can have this most amazing plan going in, but in the end, there's going to be a huge amount of randomness into whether you win or not. And that is something we all know as poker players, but it's very easy to get reminded of it when you're playing a very big buy-in tournament and you just are watching the cards run out after you've somehow gotten your chips in in a good spot and then you're just out. Oh, totally. That's a really great lesson. I mean, do you remember how you felt after the hand? Were you kind of proud of yourself? Because it's much easier to to look at a hand like Jack Deuce suited and say, well, in the first level, I have a little bit of room to four bet bluff. But a lot of people might study that strategy. And then when they're with the bright lights in action, they give themselves an excuse to fold. So were you kind of happy with the play or were you more disappointed that you were no longer in it? I was somewhat proud that I followed through on my plan. Yes, because that's always worked for me in poker throughout my career. I've, there's been a lot of times when I've had ideas and carried out strategies that were not considered the standard plays or, or whatever by the by the mainstream poker world. And just by sticking to plays that I believed in has worked out for me in the past. And so I was happy that I did that. Again, I thought it was kind of ridiculous at the same time that the sort of the strangest thing that I had put into my entire plan immediately came up six hands into the event. But I was certainly was a, was disappointed that I was out of the tournament because I was clearly an underdog going into the match against someone with much more heads-up experience than I am and a better poker player arguably overall than I am in Brian Hastings. And to have gotten in such a good position against him was very satisfying. So it was, it was ultimately disappointing that I didn't win the match. But who knows? He might have come back from a short sec anyway if I had doubled through there. He would have been very short, though. I was always a fan, of course, of the NBC Heads Up Championship. It was a lot of fun to watch. But I'm actually really surprised that there was a potential for four bet folding because I, I felt like when I was watching it, there was only like maybe one level where there was a lot of post slot play. And I guess you, you really did study for that one level. Yeah, I found the one level. <laughs> there was not a whole lot of room for four bet folding for most of the matches, but in level one, there was. And yes, I, I did study quite a lot for level one, mostly because the other levels didn't require as much study. I mean, picking your jamming ranges with, say, 30 blinds or 20 blinds. I, I studied that too, of course, but that that strategy was more straightforward. There wasn't a whole lot to it. Whereas picking a range with like 80 blinds, what are you going to four bet with? What are you going to three bet call? What are you going to raise call? Those questions were much more interesting or complicated to deal with. And so I probably spent a disproportionate amount of time on that. On the other hand, that's the level you know you're going to play, which is the, the first deep stack level. And so I wanted to make sure I had a robust plan. I mean, I didn't, it's not like I spent months and months preparing for this event, but I did, I flew, basically I flew to Vegas a few days early and kind of locked myself in my hotel room and prepped for the event and worked on ranges and talked to my coach and, uh, well, calling my coach, this other poker player uh, whose opinion I trusted on this stuff and came up with strategy and carried it out. And 
I look back on it as a positive experience for sure, but I do wish I'd gotten a little further because that, that field overall is generally pretty soft. There are a lot of poker celebrities, quote unquote, who are not necessarily professionals. And even though I didn't have much heads up experience, I probably had more heads up experience than three quarters of the field. I had won three bracelets in heads up matches. So it's not like I had no chance at all heads up, but I was facing someone who clearly was, was better than I was. Did the televised aspect of it make you nervous at all? Were any of your bracelet wins televised or was live streamed probably? The last two were live streamed. Neither of them had whole card cams, which is a little bit interesting, different than it is now. now. Nowadays when poker is live streamed, there's always whole card cams, at least as far as I know. And you can pretty much always see what everyone has and you can comment on their play. But during my two bracelet wins, I got to listen to the people in the booth kind of guessing what I had or thinking about what my opponents might be considering calling me with. And so that that was kind of fun because it showed me that listening to some of the comments that, okay, they actually don't really know what I'm doing a lot of the time. And sometimes they sometimes they make good guesses, but a lot of times they're just completely off. And that that's fun too. Whereas now it's easy for everyone to kind of look like they know what they're talking about because they can see your cards. And so it's a little bit different. But anyway, to answer your question about whether I was flustered by the cameras, I mean, I had played a, I'd played a lot of or at least a fair amount of televised poker. At that point, if you read my first book, Making Up a Poker Player, you know that my first experience in front of cameras in the 2004 World Poker Tour championship did not go especially well, and I was extremely flustered by the cameras in that one. But having then played on live stream several times since then, and also having been on TV to discuss various aspects of poker, in fact, I was on TV just a few days before the heads up because I had written an article comparing at the time the debt ceiling crisis to a poker game and Fox Business decided they wanted to put me on TV to talk about it while I was in Vegas. But anyway, the, the point of that is just, just just to say that I had had a fair number of cameras thrown at me fairly recently. And so sitting, playing someone heads up with people kind of walking around the room holding cameras was actually much less stressful than staring into a camera and doing an interview. Especially when you were so well prepared. And I think that's uh, something to the idea of preparing that it will make you less stressed. You only knew that you were going to play Brian, what, like 24 hours in advance. So some of the prep was general prep. Or, or yeah, you... it was the night it was the night before. And I had done general prep for the most part. And then I was kind of hoping that I would be paired with an opponent who I wouldn't necessarily want to follow all of these plans against someone who was maybe not a professional player and who I could maybe play a little exploitively against. But once I saw that it was Stinger, I said, okay, I, have to, I now have to really get these ranges down because he's if, if I have any weaknesses in my strategy, he's going to find a way, or I have to expect that he'll find a way to exploit them. And so I hunkered down again, you know, in the middle of the night and said, all right, I need to continue working on this further. So I'm kind of lazy and I definitely saved a lot of it to the last minute. But but once I got my opponent, I was like, okay, I have to really focus now. Now, thinking about the hand now, as you have even more years of experience and poker theory has changed some more, how do you think you would have played the hand differently if you had, let's say you still four bet preflop? Okay, that, that's the big question, I think. <laughs> but yes, go ahead. And then every, I mean, do you think everything else would have kind of gone the same? I think if you have that small of a stack to pot ratio, then yes, top pair is pretty much a hand you go with heads up. So I don't think the post flop play would have changed very much. I guess you could make some argument for checking back the flop and just inducing bluffs instead of trying to extract value out of the hand. I'm still not a heads up specialist, so I probably can't really offer you an expert opinion on heads up valuation in four bet pots. But my instinct is certainly that 
even in a four bet pot and even with the worst top pair you can come up with, I think that's still worth a value bet and that there are hands in Brian's three bet call range that include ace 10, king 10, possibly pairs smaller than 10 that he's probably not just going to straight fold on this flop. And so I, I do think it's worth a value bet and I certainly don't think I could be wrong, but I, I don't think you can value bet for a, roughly a third of your remaining chips. Or maybe it was like maybe it was more like a, a quarter of my remaining stack and then fold to the jam. But then again, maybe with your very worst value bets, you could consider it. So I guess that could be another decision point. If if it's true that in my four bet value betting four bet preflop and then value bet the flop range, if this is the weakest hand that I can have in such a range, then you could make an argument a fairly good argument actually that I could consider folding to the all in in practice on a board like that Jack 10, three with two clubs. There's so many draws that an opponent can have. And so as a poker player, when you see someone shoving on you in a board like that and you have top pair, you often just kind of shrug your shoulders and call and hope that it's one of those draws that they have. Most opponents are not fantastic at balancing their ranges exactly optimally. And so, they might be jamming with such a range there where you really can't fold any of your value bets. But if you're against an, a true expert like Brian Hastings was, then it, it might be a little bit different. So I, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to study it more. My instincts are that the, that the play was fine and, and even in hindsight, but I, I, I would have to study it some more. I think that it's funny that you laughed at the question at first because you were saying the preflop, you might play the hand. Yeah, well, definitely the preflop might have been different. Yes, I, I might very well pick a different four bet bluffing range. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to give that away before, right before WSOV. Seriously, though, really, really great and evocative hand, no doubt. You know, I noticed from both chess and poker that preparation doesn't always work out as perfectly and then imperfectly in this case where you get exactly what you prepared. But of course, in this case, luck was against you. But something nice about all that preparation, and I remember I also did a lot of preparation for a heads-up tournament. This was actually a charity heads-up tournament I played last year in Las Vegas at the Solve Y headquarters. And it had a very unusual structure with like really, really massive annies. And so I spent some time just kind of playing around with some programs and studying for it. And even though I only played one match and I ended up losing the match, I felt like, well, it was actually potentially very useful because obviously if you want to win a bracelet as you did three times, you have to win heads-up eventually. So any kind of study that goes in that area is going to be like really good for your ROI. Yeah, absolutely. It can be hard to motivate yourself to study heads up if you're not a heads up player. But if you're a tournament player, it's going to pay off someday. There's going to come a time when you're playing heads up for a bracelet, hopefully, or for some other major tournament. And any of the work you've put into heads up in the past is going to be hugely valuable at that particular moment. So it's one of those things that will, if you're a tournament player, will only have very long term implications but when it when it does come up it's it's really satisfying and actually in in all three of the bracelets i've won really my memory of them is that i kind of ran amazingly great for most of the tournament and got very very lucky but then heads up i played well i I, that was the one time i was like okay i might have gotten really really lucky to outlast everyone except for that last one person but i came from behind in, in the chip count in all three of my bracelet uh heads up matches and all three times i was very proud of how i didn't give up and continue to work on my plan and to play the best heads up poker that i could i really felt like i outplayed all three of those opponents they're all they're all really very good players by the way but on that particular day i really felt like i was i was better and that was satisfying because the rest of it i think was all luck (laughs) 
I want to ask you some questions about your writing now. You know, when preparing for this interview, I came across a quote that really resonated with some of the things I love about poker and chess. And it was from an article you wrote in the U.S. Puzzle Championships on mental floss, where you said that you've always loved puzzles. They combine the joy of revelation with the satisfaction of effort rewarded. Nothing tops the epiphany of realizing that the nine in the corner of the Sudoku means that the middle square can't be a four. It feels like magic. Do you feel this magic when playing poker? Wow, Jen. I cannot believe you dug up a mental floss article I wrote a while ago on the U.S. Puzzle Championships. That is some impressive homework. It's really wow, fascinating. I never even heard of the U.S. Puzzle Championship. You actually, you should do it. You would really enjoy it. I haven't actually, I haven't actually entered in a long time, but it's super fun every time I do it. Uh, as, <laughs> as for the question, yeah, there are similar epiphanies in in poker and in chess. Basically, the joy of kind of figuring out how one thing logically implies something sometimes very small. That was why I said can, that means this is not a four, for example, in the Sudoku. In poker, it would be something like, well, wait a minute. I'm ruling out this particular hand because this part, this player did not three bet pre-flop or this because this player acted so quickly on the flop or because this player would not have limped in this position uh, behind that particular opponent. And all you conclude from that is that they, they don't have one very specific hand. But eventually you make enough of those conclusions and then adds up to a real tangible result. And really the, the joys are small. The joys are, oh, wow, I figured out this part of it. I might still have ended up losing the hand. A lot of those stories go, well, I knew he didn't have the ace of spades. Therefore, there were very few hands in his range that could have beat me, so I shoved. And then, of course, they have the other hand that could have possibly beat you, and you lose. And a lot of times, those are the stories. And so it's not always about winning. It, the joys are more. I mean, winning is great, too. But I do take a lot of satisfaction in just kind of figuring out small things along the way. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think that's one of the one of the fun things also about studying poker that sometimes you realize things that that have that puzzle like feel to them, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, poker is basically a big puzzle. It you're starting with all possible combinations of hands, and then you're winnowing them down through logic and instinct, and then you're eventually arriving at some conclusion, and you get to do it over and over again. That's one thing that's interesting about poker is when you're playing it anyway, everything is over relatively quickly. Whereas with puzzles, you can spend hours on them and you know still be plugging away and trying to get to a solution, which has its own it's its own joy sometimes. But there's also something to be said for having conclusions. Right. I mean, that's something else you mentioned in the article about how if you tried to figure out you know short stack strategy over the table, you would just get completely exhausted because you really need to have that homework done prior if you try to figure out pot odds, short set strategy, opening ranges. Um, when you sit down at the table, even if you're the smartest mathematician out there, you're going to be exhausted by the eighth hour of play. So that ties into the game plan, your new book, right? You're trying to give people some shortcuts and some heuristics when they sit down to play. Yeah, well, thank you. It does tie, it does tie into the new book. A preparation is just essential in all of these games because there's, there's this idea that if you're going to do a puzzle or if you're going to play poker or if you're going to do any kind of intellectual endeavor that you can just kind of sit down and figure it out if you're smart enough. But nothing could be further from the truth. And the more prepared you are and the more you've seen similar situations before and gotten yourself ready for them, the faster you can respond in real time. The idea is that there are a lot of people who are love poker. They, they play a few times a year in tournaments and they just try to use their best judgment when they get to the table about what to do and see if they can win a lot of money. But often they end up failing because they have not thought through every situation carefully enough. They don't have a good short stack plan. 
or more generally, they're too afraid of busting because they don't play that many tournaments. And to them, it's important to try to survive as long as they can. But if you take on that mindset, you give yourself very little chance of making a deep run. So the game plan, my new book, is a series of rules to protect these players from their, themselves, essentially, and to give casual players who understand the game and are can play it okay, but it lets them play it much more aggressively and in a way that will give them a real chance to make a score. And that, that I had I had the casual kind of player that I see in so many Atlantic City tournaments and so many World Series of Poker events that I see once or twice a year, and they're very pleasant and they love poker, but they are always seem to be held back from really succeeding at it. I'm trying to at least give them a shot. Do you think that a lot of other training materials are, are too complicated? Because you do open the book with a quote from Albert Einstein, everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. And is there a perception that some of these training materials are just too complex for anyone except semi-pros professionals? If you're going to take poker seriously as a profession, then you should really get into the complexity and you should take on as much training material as you can. And even if you're interested in and just getting better quickly, if you're not, if you're just an amateur player, you can start with my book and do what the game plan says to do. And eventually you probably will learn the more complicated strategy that we all love about the game. But I think for someone who's just starting out, it can be a bit overwhelming to try to incorporate all that information. As you said, the quote is simple as possible, but no simpler. Some of them are too complicated. Some of it is too simple. Some of the, the strategy aimed at beginners is play super tight. You, you can't lose a big pot if you're not in the big pot. Stick to the most premium of hands, and then you'll never have too many big disasters at the table. Well, that's actually too simple, especially for tournaments, because you won't get enough chips to contend in a tournament if you play that way. And so I think books aimed at beginners tend to be too simple. And then books that are trying to get into the greater complexity and theory of poker are great for more advanced players, but they're not a good place for people to start, especially if they want to win money along the way. I think if you want to at least be able to compete and not get crushed when you're starting out in poker and you don't want it to be either too simple or too complicated. That's kind of the path I was trying to tread with this book, the game plan. I feel like we have that gap in the, in the chess world as well. And I think some of it comes down to the aspirational quality of players who want to get better that they do really want very advanced material, even if they are amateurs. And sometimes that's good to go for that aspirational material because it can be very motivational, but up to a point. Yeah, and that's definitely true in chess, in my experience, especially a player like myself, who's basically uh, an intermediate level player, far from an expert. Speaking of chess, you were actually a finalist in the My Chess Poker Game competition, oh, yes. which I ran, and your entry was Challenge Chess. Without getting into all the details of how your game worked, your game introduced the concept of bluffing into chess. And I thought that was very interesting because bluffing is really one of the hardest things for anyone in poker especially amateurs they calibrate correctly and usually as you pointed out with the jack deuce example if you were trying to mix that hand it would be very difficult because you probably either drastically under bluff or drastically over bluff what kind of advice do you give in the game plan for players who are struggling with that if you're following the game plan you shouldn't be factoring an emotion into the equation it should basically just be following instructions so essentially if if a player has the preflop initiative in the game plan and their heads up to the flop, they always bet. And then if they're multi-way, they bet if they have some kind of draw or some kind of hand. And then on the turn, regardless of how many opponents they have, the, the only bluffs would be semi-bluffs, essentially. So any kind of draw would become the bluffing range. And then on the river, I basically just say, think of the worst hand you could possibly have at this point and, and bluff with that one. So it's not, of course, the 
game theory optimal solution for bluffing. But I think it's and this is the whole idea behind the book is that all my recommendations sort of mimic what the optimal strategy would look like. They're oversimplified, but they'll be close enough that a player probably won't get too crushed playing this strategy. As long as you're bluffing more on the flop than on the turn and more on the turn than on the river. And as long as your turn bluffs have some equity in them, and then as long as your river bluffs are not hands you shouldn't be bluffing with, like your medium medium straight hands, you're going to be more or less playing a reasonable strategy. And that that's kind of like the entire ethos of the game plan. And so emotion should not be factoring into it, even though it probably does factor into it for these players now. And so that's kind of why I wanted to write the book, to try to stop them from allowing their emotions and their fears and their aspirations to take over. I guess the kind of the broad idea is that a lot of poker instruction to this point has been that you start out playing really tight or you start out maybe not playing especially well and you learn the theory and the concepts and you kind of start incorporating them as they make sense to you and eventually after really studying you can you can move up from being this losing player to someone whose ideas are actually winning ideas at the table and who has a strong approach overall whereas i'm saying okay we're going to kind of hijack that approach you're, you're going to spend you know a week or two or, or more or less depending on how much time you have studying the game plan learning how to execute it and then you'll immediately go to being a reasonable player and then you can still do everything else you would have done without having read the game plan you can still read more poker literature you can still continue your training you can still start learning poker theory and the concepts but in the meantime if you're following the game plan you'll be doing better at the felt than you would have been otherwise. And hopefully as you start reading some literature, you'll see where some of the ideas in the game plan come from. For example, this bluffing frequency thing we were just talking about, like, oh yeah, that's why Matt has us betting a lot in the flop and then a little less in the turn and then less still in the river. It's because it makes sense from a theoretical standpoint. And hopefully those kind of revelations will happen a lot as someone is learning the game and, and they'll realize that maybe the plan of like, okay, here's the seven things you should think about when deciding whether to continuation bet why that makes sense for professionals, but why it might be a bit too much for someone who's just starting out. Right. So they'll find some things that kind of reinforce what they're learning. They'll also find contradictions and they can yes. kind of like, like obviously having a checking range as well as a betting range, even with the initiative. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be curious to see. And I, it's good because I think that there is like a mini new poker boom going on with so much great poker content going out there and potential legislation coming to states like my own PA. I think there's a new hunger for this type of thing, actually. I've, I'm surprised when I give events, people are often always asking me for like a beginner's poker book. And it's hard because there's not really a lot from, you know, the, the recent times at least, right? And some of them are even potentially out of print. So yeah, it seems like you, you picked a good time to write this book. Now, speaking of writing, I know that you're also a fiction writer. And yes. what's some of your favorite writing about poker? And do you have any fiction writing in the works? Yes, I've been working on a novel for a while now. I put it aside to work on the game plan for this year, essentially. But now the game plan is finishing up. And hopefully by the time your listeners are hearing this, the game plan should be available from Amazon. Now that that's finishing up, I'm planning to get back to the novel as for poker writing that I've enjoyed, um, the classics of the literature, Alvarez, Tony Holden's Big Deal, those those are fantastic. And to me, I don't know if they've really been topped yet in terms of poker writing. I was trying to do a, a bit of an homage to the great books with The Making of a Poker Player, but I don't pretend that. I, like, I still like The Making of a Poker Player. I think it's a good book. It was a good exercise for me at the time to try to tell the story of how I learned to play poker through a narrative. And I wrote it before I was any kind of name in the poker world. I wrote The Making of a Poker Player 
when I was just this grad student who played poker to, to decide to supplement, not even supplement, to have some spending money or any money at all, really, while in, while in grad school for fiction writing. And I had those books in mind when I, when I wrote The Making of a Poker Player. But to me, that kind of poker writing maybe overly romanticizes the game a little, but that's kind of fun. I really love those books, The Biggest Game in Town and Big Deal. You introduced me, I think, recommended me a book by uh, Colson. Oh, yes. Colson Whitehead. Yes. I'm not, yeah, it's, it's called The Noble Hustle. Which, that book is great. I, I guess Colson might be mad at me for not mentioning that. I, I feel I'm in that book, so I, I feel like it's somehow not okay for me to recommend it because I'm a character in the book. But it's a fun book. I think it's hysterical, actually, uh, The Noble Hustle by Colson Whitehead. He played the World Series of Poker main event on assignment from the now defunct website Grantland several years ago. And I tweeted at him while he was flying in, like, hey, if you want to, some advice from a, someone who is somewhat literary, I'm happy to give you some poker tips. And he, lo and behold, he took me up on it. And so we established a sort of um, poker coach player dynamic. And he, we went to Atlantic City after that to play some other poker. And so uh, I became a character in his tale of learning poker and who he met along the way. And he has a very different take on it than anyone else, I would say. But I think it's a, I think it's a great book. What I really loved about it was just so hilarious. And that's not as easy to do, I think, with poker. Or um, anything, yeah. He had to carry off humor page after page after page. It's different from having like a lot of good one-liners. I think the writing is really generous and empathetic. Really goes out of its way to not mock anyone associated with the game or with um, non-traditional lifestyles, people you might only come across in poker rooms. That's something that, while not the most obvious draw to the book, something I really appreciated about it. Yeah, when I had Maria Konnikova on um, a couple episodes ago, she said that she feels that writers are inherently great poker players if they try, if they apply themselves, because so much of both professions is playing, paying attention to the minute details. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, for the most part, I, I'm sure I've met plenty of writers who would not make good poker players. I think in general, she's definitely right. And there are a lot of similarities between writing and poker. That logic is an overriding force in both. I mean, if your narrative doesn't make sense, you're not going to have much from a writing standpoint. Colson is a perfect example. He's kind of, I don't want to say he's the reason I wrote the game plan, but when Colson Whitehead came to me before the main event of the World Series, when he was writing his piece, I asked him what his plan was. He said, I'm going to play super tight. And I said, okay, can I change that plan completely in the next you know, two days before you're playing the main event? Because that, that's just the advice that people get. But someone who's smart and who can pick up on details and who can read people even if they're a rank beginner, should not be playing that way in the main event of the World Series. And so that that's really why I wrote the game plan. And that's really why I think Marie is onto something where if someone just takes not just writers, but people, but people who are detail oriented, people who are good at analyzing other people and who are good at reading people and reading situations can probably adapt themselves or at least learn to become pretty good poker players. Thank you for taking a hand that's probably one that not too many other people are going to want. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I kind of wanted to do ace-queen at first, but you said, no, 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 do this jack, do suited hand. I said, okay, I like that one too. So we'll we'll make it a little easier for you in this quixotic quest you've set up for yourself to cover all the possible starting hands in Olim and Hold'em. Uh, I'll be really curious if you can actually finish this, Jen, but I wouldn't put anything past you, I'll tell you that. Well, thank you. You know, I once uh, went on a an alphabetic diet where I ate from A to Z for 26 days. And I, I finished that. So I did lose a little weight, by the way. So I figured. Yeah, <laughs> that does make some sense. Although the end of that sounds hard because you have the Q towards the end and then Z. And so and you've already probably kind of gotten tired of the 
the diet at that point. So yeah, I'd imagine that was difficult to actually get to the finish line. This will be hard only because there's so many. And after you've already come across 100 people who have taken probably all the most common hands, and now you need to fill out 9-3 offsuit and, you know, king-7 offsuit and uh, everything in between, you know, queen-4 suited. I mean, the, eventually there's going to be a real <laughs> – it's going to be a real effort on your part to try to finish. But I wish you all the luck. And again, I kind of think you're going to do it. You're going to do whatever you set yourself to. And that's what it, that's what's amazing. One of the main things that's amazing about you, Jen. Well, thank you so much. I feel that uh, at that point, maybe some people are going to come to me. I'll get a spreadsheet together. Maybe I'll have somebody interview me about a hand. I've got a lot of plans uh, about how to right. make it work towards the end. You're thinking so. creatively. I, I like that. Okay, good. <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks again, Matt. And I hope to see you soon. And congratulations on the game plan. Oh, thanks, Jen. Appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and write a review. Your subscriptions, reviews, shares on social media truly helps motivate me as a quest for 169 intensifies. Also find me at US Chess Women where I host another podcast, Ladies Night. And follow updates on the grid at Jen Shahadi on Twitter and Instagram. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent, you won't see